welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and this is my podcast where I get to talk to coaches about coaching and we have got Scotty Williams back again to talk to me today and um, I did it to him in the last episode. I'm going to do it to him again. I'm going to get him to do the intro of the topic that we're covering today. Over to you, Scotty. Welcome, everybody. I've been rehearsing. Welcome, everybody. We are going to talk about power training for golf. So quite topical at the moment now with um, Bryson DeChambeau and, and how we've sort of seen his meteoric rise, but also just general changes in the game where power seems to be, be becoming more important. Yeah, it's um, and, and again, we, we chat about this quickly off air, but it's it's pretty close to the top thing that people ask for when they come for a golf lesson is they want to hit the ball further. They want more mm. power. They want more speed. Um, they, they're after hitting the ball as far as they possibly can. And that's probably why golf companies do so great at bringing out brand new drivers every 12 months just to, to sell <laughs> more stuff. So um, they're all about selling that, that, that that extra power in the golf swing and that those those long shots. So yeah, it's it's um it's a pretty common um request from golfers out there. Well, it's obviously the fun part of the game, isn't it? I mean, that is literally the most. I mean, seeing a long putt go in is very exciting, but hitting one right out of the middle and really watching it fly is what we all kind of turn up for. Well, I do anyway. <laughs> Yeah, no, we, we certainly like. do, and it's um, it's it's a changing game, and the the pros out there now are hitting it further and further as we go along, and we're starting to get a, a greater understanding of how much of an and and a, a gain you can score over the field by hitting it hitting it further. So, as we just as we chatted about earlier on, Bryson is certainly showing the way with that, mm. and um, when we start to break down the stats, with when we start to see the strokes gain stats and the stuff from Brody and all that kind of stuff that's been floating around now, that the further down you are on a golf hole, the easier the game becomes. It isn't yeah. about setting up for certain angles or all sorts of stuff like this anymore. It's about getting it down there as far as you can and going and finding it and hitting it again, and it's where the game's going. Yeah, and look, the stats, most of the scientific studies that have been done on PGA Tour stats have actually shown the change over time. So back in the 90s and even the early 2000s, it really was a case of drive for show, putt for dough. Driving was always underrated. It was never that far behind putting, but it was behind. And in recent times, I think it was 2014, where they did a a 10-year, sort of the previous 10 years of uh, on-course stats, putting actually surpassed. Sorry, driving, driving stats surpassed putting in terms of their correlation with prize money. Okay. So it really is it really is about driving nowadays. Again, if you even if you went back, even all the, the really good players of all time have all been good drivers of the ball that hit the ball quite like long mm. way. You go back through obviously Tiger, back to the Shark, back to Jack, Arnold Palmer, mm. even Sam Snead, those guys, they, they were all actual, in comparison to their peers, they were all long hitters. So yeah. even though they probably didn't understand it at the time from a stats perspective or from a from a scientific perspective, they were still playing that game essentially. Well, I actually just to, did – I did a little bit of homework for this chat, mate, which is unusual. Okay. But um, <laughs> So I looked on the PJ Tour website uh, – the top five players from 
25 years ago, so 1995, which is just before this sort of, uh, well, just before Tiger, I guess. And Greg Norman was number one, like you say, power hitter. Um, but Nick Price, Ernie Al, yeah, Nick Saldo, uh, and Bernard Langer. You would class Ernie L's Nick Price as long. Um, probably not Faldo and Wanger, maybe. And probably not Colin Montgomery, who was ranked sixth in the world. Okay. This, is, this, is, yeah. this is world rankings, actually. Sorry, it wasn't the PGA Tour website. It was world rankings. Okay, so that's that's world rankings. So arguably not super long, but probably decent long. You, you yeah, probably wouldn't I'm, class any of those players except for maybe Faldo as a short hitter. Mm. But... Um, but certainly the the power game was probably still there as well, even back then. Yeah, well, I think the thing is, I think it was, I think the opportunity for it was always there, but it was never something that was valued so high that people would would put in the training that they do these days to make to actually get some distance on the field. And I think that's actually what's happened. I think they've woken up, they've seen an opportunity, and you know the top five right now: Dustin Johnson, John Rahm, JT. Rory McIlroy and Bryson DeChambeau. All power game, isn't it? And, you know, a lot longer than those five players from years ago. Now, there was always, like you say, the, the best players were probably already power players, but they just weren't aware of how much they possibly could have dominated. Um, and so, obviously, one of the other key differences these days is, you know, I look at the top 50 players in the world and think, wow, most of them are training properly in the gym like full-time athletes. Yeah, they are. Um, whereas it would have been quite patchy 25 years ago and earlier, obviously. Yeah, for sure. But again, it's it's golfers having access to information now and they can start to break down the areas that they can improve to to see the biggest gains in their game. So yeah. you start to, to break down your own game and your own body personally and say, well, if I increase this by 10%, then I'm going to see a 20% increase in my in my scoring and then, hence, that might lead to a thirty percent increase in cash earned. Yeah, for example. So, you can target the correct areas these days, as opposed to going off hearsay and just guesstimates about what golfers have done in the past. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's a powerful time for for for, for players out there because they have access to this information where they can really start to start to target their training and target the areas that they should be improving on. Well, I, I know that there's um, some stats guys that work on the PGA Tour that sort of um, uh, contract themselves to players to actually do statistical analysis individually for players to work out which parts of the greens they need to be hitting. Um, so let alone just pulling apart their own strokes gained um, stats, but you can individualize this stuff to work out basically where the money is going to be made. Um, so, you know, the, the, the top guys are doing that. Yeah, it's, um, there's a there's a guy out there called Scott Fawcett that does something similar with his mm. training session. I've been trying to get him on to do a do a session for um, the PGA pros out there. So if you're tuning in, Scott, definitely hit me up. I would be really mm-hmm. keen to have a chat with you on this podcast and yeah. also get you to talk to the Aussie members. Um, that would be that would be pretty cool. So as a golf coach, my my first thought when I'm coaching junior players. Um, as a general rule, was to teach them to hit it as far as they possibly could early on, and I would teach them to hit it straighter later. That was what mm. I used to do. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing from a physical perspective? I think it's a much better way to fast-track their neuromotor system, for them to explore 
um, how their body works for the swing um, rather than constraining them with con with concepts which may or may not apply to their body. So I think I think you're naturally going to explore more of your own range of motion and work out what works for you and what doesn't when you're not so quite so constrained. Which is interesting. Once again, we talk about talk about these sort of trade-offs or even contradictions where you know there's a, another assumption out there in the golf industry. I think which is well, if you teach them correctly from from day one before they get a chance to build all these bad habits, um, then that's better too. So you know it's sort of I guess I guess you've got the nice blend of both. If you're the coach and you're actually guiding them, so they're not making sort of fatal flaws, but you're actually letting them swing and work out what their body can do as well. I think that's going to be probably the the optimal situation. I tend I tend to find that um, for the the type of golfer standing in front of me, I've come across the golfer that's too controlling a lot more often than someone that's too free. So mm. if, if I have a, a golfer in, that's on my coaching tee that's got that that constraining personality type um, to start with, and I work pretty heavily on technique and don't get them to free the golf swing up, for example, they're going to tend to – I'm going to have a, a, a huge amount of trouble getting them to be freer and more powerful in the future. So yeah, wow, yeah, I personality just, type would drive it for sure. I just, I just personally find that if I can get them free and powerful first, without giving them time to overthink technique in the golf swing, um, that generally works pretty well. So mm. um, I'll, I'll toot my own horn because I did um, as a <laughs> as a trainee golf pro. I used to do the junior programs up in Aubrey, and one of the kids up there that was in my junior program became the Australian long drive champion uh, a few years ago. So he's been out there and um, competing on that long drive circuit and um, I'll take and some it, of the credit for that. It was, was all thanks to you, wasn't it? He's oh, mentioned you. Of course you. it was. Of course it was. I'm sure that was just a byproduct, but I was certainly of that same opinion back then. I was, I was trying to get him to swing it as hard and as fast as he as he could to get that power in his swing and then I could straighten him out in the future. Mm. It's um it's a common problem too. You hear I can count so often the times that you hear on the on the golf course when you're playing with the average player where they hit a bad shot and they say they swung too fast. And I, I, my first comeback when I hear that comment is, I don't think Tiger's trying to slow his swing down. I don't think yeah. those players out there are trying to slow their swing down. And um, sometimes swinging faster can actually take away some of the swing faults. It can. Mm. I, I find probably the problem is sometimes players swing too slow as opposed to swinging too fast. So, well, from a physiological point of view, a lot of the a lot of the stabilizer muscles that we need to activate actually work better on reflex so what that means is if they need to work because there's actually a bit of force coming their way they're more likely to work and then the other thing that i imagine from a sort of a motor a, from a skill acquisition point of view is it's true if 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 they never swing very fast and they're always controlled and careful in all of their practice when they finally do actually get on the tee and maybe the a bit of adrenaline they swing it a bit quicker well they haven't practiced that skill they haven't practiced the skill of swinging at that speed, so you know perhaps they should more often. Yeah, for sure. And just from a, from a coaching point of view as well, sometimes golfers I think get confused about what the target actually is. Mm. So if I was to ask you now, when you're playing golf, what's the target, Scotty? What answer would you give me if I asked you that question? Where, where am I? Am I am I driver in I hand mean, on the tee? 
Yep, either way, you're on the golf course playing golf. What's the target? What's the aim of golf? Uh, well, it would, my target would change. I'd be middle of the fairway with my driver, yep. um, which will probably answer, giving you the wrong answer. You're probably setting me up here. You're throwing me a curveball. <laughs> never, <laughs> never, never. And, um, and obviously with, with an approach shot, I'd be thinking about where the ball's going to land and, and thinking about how it's going to react and, and where it's going to finish up. Yep. No, yeah. I, I would I would tend to guide my players down that pathway. I think golfers get caught out thinking that the target is the golf ball. Ah, so, right. Yeah. So they stand on the tee and they're concerned about hitting the golf ball. So they swing at the golf ball instead of swinging through the golf ball down towards the fairway. Yes. Okay. So it's an so, internal locus of control rather than the external locus of control. Yeah, so sometimes you can free a golfer's swing up just by getting them to swing as though the target's down the fairway as opposed to the target being the golf ball and the ball just gets in the way of the golf club yeah. coming through. So that can yep. be a handy coaching strategy as well. Yep. Well, I'm glad I hit your curveball. I was worried. No, you, you, um, um, <laughs> you, you were supposed to get the question wrong, so we're going to ask you stupid. What are you doing? What are you, what are you thinking about? Oh, I've been hanging around too many coaches. No, that's a good thing. So, um, yeah, so I guess going into some of the – there's a really old stat. Sorry, I'm just going into back back into power now. There's a really old stat from a really old study, which means it's pro, it's possibly even more than this now, but a an increase of seven miles per hour on your driver, which, which is something that we often do with our development program. That's about the average that we get over probably a – uh, eight to ten month period, we'd, we'd increase club head speed with driver by seven miles per hour. We often get more than that. Equates to 17 metres further off the tee, which equates to 2.2 strokes per round, which over a four-round tournament would be nine shots. Which is so, a pretty significant gain, isn't it? It's a pretty pretty mm, powerful increase. Yeah. Um, and so... Some of the things you want to hear about some of the things that uh, contribute to power and club head yeah, speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was keen to actually head down that path about how do we train that to get this power? How do we increase it? So let's yeah. talk about some of the things that that tie in with this power. So with within my own PhD study where we ran 122 male golfers, so we had 33 females as well, but I'm at the moment just mostly analysing the male data because we're keeping them separate. Um, so there was 25 tests and eight of the power, eight power tests that we used, when you looked at the results of those, explained 32% of handicap and 59% of club head speed. So the power test really did... So there's only sort of 41% left of other stuff that contributes to it, like possibly balance and flexibility and strength kind of make up the rest. So power was, was very um, a very good predictor of club head speed. So then how do we increase how do we increase that? How do we increase power? So the number one thing, and this is what Bryson's done quite well, is actually to increase your body mass. Okay. So just being heavier. And and going back to some of those players back in the mid nineties there, you know, Ernie Els, Nick Feldo, they're big guys. They're just big. You know, they got their, so they're creating a lot of ground reaction force that they can anchor off. Um, you know, they, there's the old saying with power that you can't shoot a cannon from a rowboat or from a canoe. 
Um, whereas if it's stable, then you can you can create some power and shoot shoot something off. So increasing body mass is number one. Number two is increasing the range of motion in your swing. So you've got more time to develop force. Now we talked about that in one of the previous podcasts. Um, but obviously it needs to be done with some structural integrity. We can't just be moving in a, in a wild arc and losing balance and losing stability. But if you're able to do both, then that gives you more of an opportunity to create power. And obviously long drive guys, they take a really big lash at it, don't they? They do. And, but they've also got a 50 yard wide fairway to aim at as well. So <laughs> yeah, <it's right. laughs> it's, um, um, yeah, you've yeah. got to make decent contact still as well, don't you? Well, and those, those, those two points together, um, the other issue is, and I saw Bryson was you know, talking about what he's going to do at the Masters and he, he's thinking about pulling out the 48-inch driver. So obviously the long drive guys have longer, longer clubs. Now, it's pretty hard to control those longer clubs when you're light. If you're too light, it's going to control you. So you know, if they've got a heavier club in their hand, which essentially it is once you've got acceleration, um, they need to be heavy. But that then does allow them to increase their range of motion just with the club itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the third way, the third way to increase power is to increase your rate of force development. So that's sort of more what we actually train for in the gym. So muscles becoming more efficient, creating more force, a better connection between the brain, the nervous system and the muscles. It fires faster. So that can create more power. Um, and obviously the other part of training, and, and this is where it sort of links in with coaching as well, is just having a better time segmental coordination so that making sure the kinematic sequence is optimized. So when we get that acceleration through the pelvis to the shoulders and the thoracic and then to the arms and the hand, there is an optimal timing between those. And if, if it's nicely timed, then you're going to maximize that um, ground reaction force through to club head speed. And so from what I can understand, Bryson's basically hitting all three points pretty hard in the last year or two. Well, we seem to have had some technical issues there. My computer froze up completely um, and we dropped out there just for a second. So we will pick it right back up again where we dropped out um, and we'll um, get going again with Scotty talking about power. We're back, Scotty. I think you were talking about uh, kinetic sequences then, there when we had those problems there. So let's get back to that. Yeah. So obviously, you know, in, in reference to to Bryson, but but just anyone who's trying to increase their power, um, better timed segmental coordination, or the you know making sure that the kinematic sequence is optimized. So making sure that those accelerations through your pelvis, your upper body, your your lead arm, your hands are actually happening at the optimal time. So obviously that, that's something that with tempo drills and just generally coaching, it's something that you guys are, are always trying to, to achieve because it obviously helps with, um, with the club face control as well. Yeah, that's cool. So for the average player that's out there, what's a simple – is there a simple test that they can do to find out what their power, power is? Yeah, so, so in terms of – testing all of this stuff we always take a three segment approach so we look at the lower body the core and then the upper body um, so lower body simple test is a vertical jump um, so how high you can jump which you can anyone can do that themselves if they've got space where they can sort of jump up and 
tap the wall and maybe a bit of chalk on the fingertips is a, is a good way to do it. You get in trouble if you do it in your own home, but still. Um, a vertical jump test, uh, even better if you want to use it over time is an estimated power equation. So there's actually an equation that you can do which factors in body weight. Now that'd be important for say a Bryson. So given how important body mass is for power, um, as you put on extra weight, obviously you can't jump as high, but your power through your legs may still be going up. So we want to, yeah, so vertical jump and its related equations are how we test power for the lower body. Um, core testing we do with medicine ball throws. So either with a standing medicine ball throw, so typically a three kilogram ball, see how far you can throw it. So increasing that has that, that's highly correlated with club head speed, something like 0.7. So it's, it's really quite highly correlated. Um, a medicine ball sit throw or sit up throw is another one. So you're lying on the ground, you got your three kilogram medicine ball. And then as you do a sit up, you throw the ball as far as you can. Mm-hmm. And then upper body, we sit ourselves on a 45 degree bench and pass a medicine ball as far as we can. So provided having, having that sort of as the conduit, I guess, to make sure that a physical program is working. So there's no point training in a sense for golf if those tests aren't improving. Because at the end of the day, power is our most highly correlated uh, physical capacity with club head speed and handicap. So we want to be making sure, and this that applies to most sports. Most sports, if our training is effective, the athlete is becoming more powerful and then they can execute their sporting skill with, with greater proficiency. Yeah, and, and that's where I was I was keen to go. So how to train it. So we've 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 gone out there, we've we've tested our power and we're understanding which part of it we need to improve, what's the best mm. way to, to train it? Is it just straight weight training or is there other ways to do it? Yeah, so so it's interesting. So knowing that power is where we need to get all athletes. Now, that's not all people, but it's all sports people. Um, if you want to improve your sport through your physical training, we need to improve power. But it's sort of, it's not as easy. You've got to sort of walk before you can run. So, because power training tends to be more on the advanced end of things, there are safe ways that you can improve your power, like kettlebell swings, um, doing movements just a little bit faster, or you know, jumping type movements. Skipping is a great one for lower body power because it's it's increasing the speeds and the stiffness through your lower limbs. So, skipping medicine ball throws for sort of upper body and core stuff. So it's not unattainable for the average person, but in an ideal world, we would actually go through a proper process. So that that proper process is, again, stuff we've talked about before on the podcast, which is achieving healthy joints. So correct length tension relationships around the joints, making sure that people can activate uh, their glutes, they can activate their deep core muscles, making sure the joints are healthy. We, got, we have to do that first. Otherwise, when we get to power training, people get injured or they get at least they get dysfunctional, stiff and sore and it doesn't work as well. Step two, we build strength. Um, technique awareness first, you know, using like for if I use a, a, um, a squat as an example, we'd start with an air squat and then we'd move to weighted squats. Stage three, we would go through um, similar versions but just adding a bit of speed so we've got something called a sport squat in the gym which is where we can do a squat with a barbell on our back and then explode up onto your toes so you're kind of making that transition from strength training to power training but with a movement that's safe that you're familiar with with by that point in time 
step four, plyometric training. has been a lot of a lot of studies in golf that show that plyometric training for six, eight, ten weeks can really help even um, reasonably lightly trained juniors. So low training age athletes, have, it's still worked quite well with. So jumping and landing, skipping, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then step five is loaded plyometrics. So a barbell squat jump is something that typically in our development program, we haven't for 10 months. And in that last two to three months, we end up getting to the point where we can do barbell squat jumps with them. So that's kind of, and look, ultimately, well-trained athletes will express their maximum power at about 80% of their 1RM. So let's just say you your, your heaviest squat for simplicity is 100 kilograms. At 80 kilograms, that's where you're going to be um, producing most power. So, um, you know, but obviously that's not something you can do with athletes straight away, um, but that's where we try and take them because, you know, that's what the science is saying to do. So now that we're so clear on the fact that power is where it's at for golf, this type of training becomes, you know, really pertinent and worthwhile taking athletes through a process over a, a one or two year period of time. Um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you, we just didn't get that opportunity to because it wasn't that acceptance that, you know, this is what needs to happen. Um, you know, I get in trouble for having barbells on, on the backs of golfers, uh, even when I started, um, even though this stuff had actually been published. <laughs> we knew about it, but it wasn't accepted yet. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a good look, but now it's a good look. It's actually a good look now. <laughs> so that's the is process. That- is that is that still in a in a golf perspective? Is, is do you think that's just because golf golf coaches in general have always been a little bit slow in the uptake of, of sports science? Um, I think it's changing now. I think it definitely mm. is changing now, mm. um, and I think that's encouraging. But I would I would have thought twenty thirty years ago maybe golf coaches weren't quite as open to to the sports sciences. They were more opposed, the more going with the stuff that they'd been handed down from. From past coaches, yeah, I think it's probably true, and I think it's just about accessibility. You know, sports science information wasn't super accessible; um, it wasn't it wasn't shared openly. Um, we, you know, probably we didn't have a foot in the door that much to be able to share it. So it's a two way street, I guess. But um, whereas, you know, coaches learning from coaches, well, that's that's part of the fabric of golf and the golf industry, and that's a great part of the the golf industry, and and that should never change. But um, you know, the best quality information um, needs to be made available to people. And I guess well, that's sort of where I'm positioning myself, I guess, a little bit is trying to share that information so that it can become a bit more mainstream and easier to get a hold of. Yeah, no, that's it's 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 it's. It's cool. It is. It's um. It's good information coming out now, and the coaches are getting access to it. And it's it has to improve your players. I think that's a really exciting time to be involved. Um, mm. Kids, should we get juniors involved in this type of training? Is this what we what we're heading for? Well, uh, Chris Smith, who has done some, he's published some really good stuff in golf, and uh, his brother went through the national program. Um, Chris was a good golfer himself. His brother was better, <laughs> Brendan. <laughs> but um, but uh, it, and he's done some work with Golf New South Wales up there, I believe, at, at some point. Um, and anyway, his his plyometrics program was was on teenage golfers. So he was doing um, you know jumping drills and med ball throws and um, you know jump lunges and and things like this. So you've got to work. The, you've got to take the the young athletes through a process. You've got to teach them to stabilise first. You've got to 
um, make sure that, that they're training with good position and good posture. But it's a bit like, it's actually, I've only just thought of this now, but it's a bit like the way you instinctively were in, intuitively teaching your young golfers how to hit the ball hard first. But maybe we maybe the best way for them to learn is to let them actually do dynamic movements because they clean them up pretty quick. You know, you've got to, and, and it's much better if you're there to guide them and, and teach them what good position is, etc. But, you know, I don't think we necessarily need to get 13 and 14 year olds to do six months of core training before we do anything else. Otherwise, they're going to fall apart. It doesn't necessarily play out that way. We, we can't load them too much, but, you know, you get them. It's funny because in the same sentence, we, we could say that, but then you look at what the forces that go through a 12-year-old netballer's body five days a week when they're sort of playing competitive netball, that's horrific. The forces and the lo- dynamic loads that are going through those young joints are horrific, but somehow that's okay, you know, compared to doing a controlled strength and conditioning program where it's all about form and making sure you're moving properly and feeling the right muscles working. Somehow that gets judged with a finer lens than what kids are doing in PE at school. Yeah, I, I s- s- suppose it's probably that's probably because it's a it's an a sport that they're playing as opposed to uh, doing fitness stuff inside of the gymnasium. It's not, um, but it's, as you said, it's a sport where it's played on a hard surface and it's a very stop sport. They they jar pretty heavily through through joints playing netball. I think that would be pretty, um, yeah, well, pretty I mean, tough, tough on young bodies. Absolutely, and it's been proven to be over time, and there's there's plenty of injuries. And, you know, the typical college athlete gets in, um, you know, first-year college, you hear this from all the strength and conditioning coaches over there, these guys are beat up. They're 18 and their bodies are cooked or, you know, close to it. Or they've certainly got some real issues that hamper their training and their ability to play. So that happens somewhere between 10 and 17. Um, and it's, you only need a little bit of understanding of physics to understand the forces that happen. When you sprint and then you stop and change direction on a hard surface, it's, it's probably going to be something like four times your body weight going through one leg within a split second. Um, whereas, you know, you look at a, a lunge with a couple of little dumbbells in your hand and it's less than body weight going through your body over a number of seconds. So it's the forces, you've, you've got to look at the forces that are involved with these movements to understand where the actual risk is. Yeah, and um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that if you if you start them off slowly, start them off with, with small movements and gradually build them up with correct technique and correct form, it can only help them. Um, yeah. And from a coaching perspective as well, you're giving them more body awareness um and if they they're getting more of a sense of how their body moves in space from doing those exercises that can only help from a from a golf coaching perspective as well yeah and look um you know the way gymnastics does a pretty good job of this gymnastics does a really bad job of some things but it does do a really good job of um of building building bodies and breaking them but in terms of their training um you know there's a very sophisticated warm-up that they go through and, and that's, that's the place to put this stuff. It's, it's how you sequence it. So it, we want to do some core training, some body awareness stuff with young athletes at the beginning of sessions as part of their warm-up. And then they can use that and use those, those body awareness tags or those kinesthetic tags and take them straight into some bigger body weight movements 
um, or sorry, body compound movements. Um, that's, that's the way to do it. We don't necessarily need to hold them back from, from compound movements because they're doing it when they play sport anyway. This is the thing that's not understood. These guys, when you look at them play any kind of team sport, it's, it's amazing what they're doing. So in the gym, we're doing a slow controlled version of that. So there's no problems doing lunges, squats, um, deadlifts with, with, you know, not too heavy weights. Obviously it depends on what, what age we're talking about here, but, um, I, th- I think you got to teach them as quick as you can, as early as you can, and then just make it appropriate. Makes makes complete common sense, and um, I haven't got any problem with there. But I, as a as a coach out there, I'd be certainly employing the expertise of someone like yourself if I was doing that type of training with with my players. I'd definitely be um, searching outside for a service provider to certainly help me with that. Yeah, look, and there's a, there's a time and place. I mean, obviously, you know, engaging uh, kids in any any activity, it, you have to make it fun. You have to make it engaging, and that's where sport wins out. But, um, you know, we're a sport-mad country here in Australia, and I, um, we've just got to make sure that we build bodies that are going to last as well. That's sort of – that's the concern I have for Australian uh, – young Australian sports kids is that it's go, 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 and um, it's kind of chuck them all in the deep end and see who can swim really in terms of their bodies lasting. <laughs> Which can, so. can cause some problems in the future, I'm sure. Yeah. So any curveballs for me to finish off today, Scotty? We've had a, uh, had a good chat with some technical problems about halfway through as well. Well, actually, I'm going to – I will throw a curveball at you. Yeah, um, <laughs> here comes the breaking ball. Um, so I guess from a, a, a technique point of view, um, and if we sort of look at, at what Bryson's doing, and you'd be able to break this down better, but, but any, any sort of powerful golf swing, some of the things that I note are – a wider arc, straighter arms in the first half of the backswing than maybe some coaches teach, more rotation through all segments um, than maybe you see with other players. Um, however, properly loaded with active tension, a little bit of flexion in that rear, rear knee, I, I notice as well. So it's not sort of what I call fake turn. It looks like proper loading. Um, and a faster takeaway which from my perspective would load the elastic structures more forcefully um, provided you're strong enough and you've built the body that can do that. It, to, to me, that's, seen, that's sort of what I'm seeing, but, but what other things that would you sort of promote when you're teaching technically to have a powerful swing and to hit it further? Yeah, I, I think you've you've probably hit all the all the key points there. It is, it is about increasing the arc. Um, it's about increasing the the body turn um, with good structure still. So as as we said um, in the flexibility episode, it was about maintaining the connection between the mm. uh, the, the body segments because you can have a an ultra long golf swing, but if you haven't got that that kinetic link going through the golf swing you're gonna it's all it's all for zero basically isn't it so mm. um i would definitely think you've hit the hit the mark with 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 those comments there and yeah i think um golf as i said i think golf coaching went through a phase there where it was all about the shorter golf swing the more controlled golf swing um stabilizing the bottom half um mm. to get 
what some coaches were calling the X factor, but I think that was wasn't quite understood as well as what maybe Jim was actually explaining it as. So some coaches took it down a different pathway to what Jim was actually talking about. Um, Jim's obviously a successful coach and switched on in this space, and yep. I think he um, he had the the right idea behind it and had the sports science behind it. But I think some coaches maybe took it to the extreme, um, mm. and that may cause some problems. But Obviously, increasing increasing the arc, increasing the the body turn, bottom half and top half, um, mm. but keeping those structures in place, I think, is the key thing. So, you have to get that trade off. You've got to be able to mm. still hit the center of the club face. Um, um, so that's obviously very important. And if you're highly skilled, as the tool players are, you can probably swing a bit harder and a bit faster, and swing it a bit further than what the average player may do. Mm. So it's all about that those trade-offs, understanding that you can have that bigger backswing, the more rotation, the more um, the more uh, swing length, so to speak. But if you're not hitting the center of the club face, then there is no mm. point in doing that. Well, so. actually, that was one of the other things that I was pondering with, um, with Bryson in particular. And I, I had seen some... Some stuff, and I had a chat with Sasho McKenzie about this too. About he, they're, what they're terming, and it's their own. This sort of coined this new phrase, anatomical governors. So there are some bits in in Bryson's lead arm that he'll lock, because um, in order to sort of swing as freely as he does, he still needs to control. And we know the importance of face angle in terms of where the ball goes. It's four times important, more important than um, club pass. Yeah. Um, so, so how do you kind of marry that up? Because if, if I was, well, typically if I swing as I've experienced different things myself, if I swing hard, sometimes I hit it straighter, but I do tend to have a lot of, a lot of movement of the club face through the hitting zone, which is, doesn't tend to favor me too well. But you, you've sort of mentioned before that when they swing harder, they, they can swing it straighter sometimes. So what do you think is happening at the face with face angle? If that's the most important thing, yeah. what's going on there? I, I just think with with golfers and it's with we're probably talking more club golfers than the high performance players at this at this level. If mm. you free up the swing, as we were speaking about earlier on, it's about taking away that control. So instead of them trying to hit the ball straight, they mm. free the swing up, and um, it generally it generally tends to fall into place a. a a touch easier if they're, if they're just swinging the club rather than trying to hit the golf ball. So um, tour players are obviously a completely different breed and we're talking about the the 0.000% of, of golfers mm. in the world. But for the average player out there, generally want to feel like they're freeing the golf swing up a little bit and not just trying to steer the ball down the fairway. So I think, think that, that ties allows, in. Do you think that allows a bit more natural acceleration? It does. Perhaps. It does, and it is. It's it's about it's about them understanding that they don't need to control the golf club. They don't need to try and control where the golf ball goes. And you start bringing into into some sports psychology as well about uh, letting go of the control mm. in in the game of golf and just swinging the club and allowing the ball to get in the way of the swinging club. Mm. Um, generally, free it up, but. 
in my my opinion, with good golfers, in my experience, they're they're certainly overthinking it. They're certainly over controlling the golf club in most situations. Mm. So just the fact that they're trying to swing faster um, can certainly take away some of those more basic swing faults. Less time to think. <laughs> Definitely, there's there's a paper out there, and I have to I'd, I'd have to try and find it again. But they did some testing. It was years ago. And I saw it um, that when the average player was swinging, they had uh, all sorts of brain activity going on in the mm. conscious part of the mind, and the high performance players were flatlining in the conscious wow. part of the mind. Wow! So they 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 switched that brain off to be able to speak. So that's why I put my hand up and say I couldn't be a tour player. I was too smart to be a tour player. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think but, the more I study this stuff, the worse I'm getting to. So that fits. Yeah, you want to turn that brain off when you're out there playing. You just want to, and we'll we'll get into this. I'm I'm going to hit a, a couple of sports likes up that I'm that I follow on social media to come on the podcast as well. So I'll we'll definitely listening. pick. I'll be definitely pick their brain when it comes to this space. Yeah, for sure. Great. So thanks again, Scotty. Awesome chat again with Power. So um, again, everyone out there, I would love to hear from you on social media. So you can find the podcast on Twitter at Coaching Pod, and you can find it on Facebook and Instagram at Coaching Uncovered. And definitely jump into the golf performance group that Scotty runs, yep. which would which would be great. So search it up on Facebook, and you'll get in there, and you can share the conversations we're having in there as well. Golf Performance Science on Facebook, yep. Golf, golf Performance Science, jump in there and we would love to hear from you in there as well. So send through your comments and feedback, start a chat on social media. We'd love to hear from you and uh, we'll catch up with you soon with the next episode. Bye.